Beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am proud to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. <coughs> Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm actually not home. I am away. Um, Fred, is this screen still being shared? Oh, there. Okay, there's everybody. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm not home. I'm away. I'm on a, a personal retreat. Uh, but I want to introduce the guest speaker for today, Pastor Chris. Uh, you know, uh, Pastor Chris and his church, they've actually invited me to uh, preach at their, um, their retreat uh, for, I guess, for two of their retreats. So, yeah, I got to know him and his family uh, as we got to share in some fellowship um, there. And a great family. He's married to Catherine. They have a son, uh, Eben, short for Ebenezer. And uh, coincidentally, Catherine's uh, father uh, is a minister in the PCA, and uh, they were missionaries to Turkey. And when I first started, I was uh, in the PCA and I got examined in the PCA. And I remember her father because she called me out on a, a very um, bad mistake I made during oral exams. Uh, because I was talking about how Moses succeeded Joshua. And of course, that didn't happen. Joshua succeeded Moses. And so he raised his hand and he said, so uh, how, did, how did Moses succeed Joshua? And I said, wait, that's not the case. He's like, that's what you said. So anyway, uh, her father, um, but very great man, very respected man, but called me out when I was being examined. And uh, I, made, I made the connection, I think at the last retreat that that was her dad. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, Pastor Chris, great brother. Right now he is serving in Queens, um, Reformed Church of Newtown, uh, which itself is a church with a, an amazing story. Um, but he serves the uh, English congregation there. And uh, without further ado, Pastor Chris, uh, thank you for sharing the word with us today. Yeah, really glad to be here. Uh, it's great to see uh, your church in person after hearing so much about it from uh, Sam and also from uh, John Lee as well. And uh, yeah, just excited to just be with you and to share this word, which I think is uh, a very important word right now uh, in, uh, in the midst of all that we're going through. You know, when I was a kid, uh, my sister and I would get into fights pretty much constantly. <laughs> and it often was over kind of a theme. Uh, it usually was she was mad at me because I was walking too loud or talking too loud or watching TV too loud or playing music too loud. You know, you kind of get the theme. And we'd often go to my mom. And uh, my mom, you know, at that time, she was a single parent, uh, working two jobs, just trying to keep everything afloat. And when we'd come to her, just kind of like, oh, you know, 
Kelly did this, uh, Chris did this. My mom would always just stop us and say three words. She would say, work it out. <laughs> and that was, that was usually it. Um, like, work it out. And then she would kind of go on with what she was doing. And I know that was out of frustration um, because, you know, obviously we were pretty frustrating. But also now that I have a child of my own, I see the wisdom in what she was saying. She was saying that in the midst of what we were going through, we needed to eventually learn how to deal with this ourselves. We needed to learn how to work through conflicts on our own. We're not going to always have mom there to solve the problem. And so we needed to figure these out, these issues out and other issues out as well. And that I think is very much what Paul is uh, speaking to the Philippian church and to all his readers about uh, in this passage as well. Paul uh, wrote, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this statement really is a point of personal reckoning. It is a point of personal decision in the book of Philippians. If you've read the book of Philippians before, it is very much a joyful book. Paul throughout this book is just joyfully um, kind of inviting people in Joy um, in Greek is an appreciation of grace. So Paul, throughout this letter, just is inviting the Philippians to share his joy, to appreciate grace like he is experiencing grace, and also through that then to be led to action, to be led to um, a desire to be unified as a church, a desire to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ, and also to be led to having the same mindset as Christ, to be selfless and to be uh, sacrificial and to be servant like, like Christ was. But now we see that Paul in this part of Philippians 2 is, is kind of, he has uh, funneled all of these um, encouragements and exhortations to this point. And now he's saying, after all I've said, after all I've encouraged you to do, after you know, all of my exhortations, work it out. Work these things out. Ask yourselves, what does it mean um, to have unity in Christ? What does it mean to have the same mindset in Christ? What does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ in our workplaces, in our families, in our church, um, in our community? What does it mean for the gospel uh, to shape our politics, uh, very relevant right now, to shape our attitudes to shape our, responsibility, our responses to trials and struggles and issues that we are facing. If you've read um, this book before and the other prison epistles, you know that Paul was uh, speaking these words in the midst of a very tenuous time in his life. He had basically lost everything. He was, had been arrested. He was in a um, prison cell in Rome. And basically, every day could have been his last day. He was a special prisoner of the emperor, which means that there needed to be no trial to execute him. If the emperor said yes, he would be taken out and killed. And so he lived every day in the midst of this sense of, what, what, am I, what, what is my next day going to be? And I'm sure in the midst of that, he longed to just help the Philippians help them with all their issues and problems. They were in the midst of a lot of turmoil in their church as Paul wrote this. They had internal trials. There were rivalries that were kind of breaking apart the church at that time. Uh, 
earlier in Philippians, it speaks about how there was a faction that was for Paul and a faction that was against Paul. And the ones who were against Paul were preaching against Paul from the pulpit. They were calling him names, making, you know, crazy conspiracy theories, all these other things about him. And also there were these different leaders who were against each other in the midst of it. So Paul, in the midst of that, is just longing that he could just be there with them in person to solve their problems. Like my mom, just to say, work it out and to help them figure it out. But unfortunately, he's in Rome. And he might actually not be around the next day. He might be dead. And so in the midst of that, he is uh, encouraging his people to work it out, to work out their own salvation, to, to really think clearly and deeply about what it means to follow Christ in, um, in their lives. Not just to believe, but to actually live their faith in a very intentional way on a daily basis. And I think this is a really important message for us, as I said earlier. I mean, we're living in the midst of this pandemic where it's caused probably a lot of hardship in many of your lives. And if anything, it's caused just a lot of annoyance and struggles for us. I mean, wearing masks, social distancing, Thanksgiving's coming up and the CDC is saying we should only be gathering with immediate families, we shouldn't travel. All those things are hardships and struggles. And I'm sure there are some of you struggling in much deeper ways as well. Depression, anxiety, fear, worry, financial struggles, all of these things. We're also in the mid middle of political divides that are not just tearing our country apart, but tearing the church apart. I don't know about you, but I know in my family, if I met with my extended family over Thanksgiving, we'd be having a lot of awkward moments talking about politics at this moment because we have a lot of divides in our family politically. And so there's another kind of struggle and hardship that we may face. Also, um, as was mentioned in the prayer earlier, we are in the middle of cries for uh, racial justice that are causing other divides in our society as well. We're in the midst of a massive global suffering and a lot of mental health issues as well. I mean, I am a, a as well as being a pastor, I'm also studying to get a master's in counseling as well. And I'm very aware of just uh, the emotional struggles many people are going through in this time that you may be going through, that I am going through as well in this time. So in the midst of all of that, how are we to respond? Our faith can just seem distant at times. It can be a struggle at times to really understand how do we respond. And so Paul's exhortation for the Philippians who are going through their massive struggles and uncertainty, and also I think for all generations of Christians in the midst of the various uh, struggles and tragedies and issues, is to work it out. To really think deliberately and intentionally about how Jesus Christ, um, as our Lord and Savior, uh, the demand of Christ on our lives, um, and also the, the joy of Christ in our lives, and the joy of God's grace upon our lives, how that um, shapes us. And sometimes that's going to come easily. I think sometimes that will be a very clear answer. We will understand it. Well, we will know what to do. But sometimes we will not know what to do. It will not be an easy answer. We will look in scriptures, we will pray, we will discern, and we will go, I still don't know God. But still the response is, work it out. Keep working um, to uh, 
have the mindset of Christ in our lives and to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. So today we're going to seek to understand that call. What is Paul saying to us when he says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling? And then we're going to look at um, how we respond to that in our daily life. And we're going to focus on that um, through the example that Paul gives in this passage about grumbling. So let's firstly look at the call that Paul gives here. We just read in verse 12, Paul said, Therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And that last line, I'm sure if you've been in church for a while, you know that that can be a pretty controversial sentence. It can be used by different Christian groups to say things like, well, yeah, Paul said it. We got our salvation's our own. You know, we have to work it out. We have to, we are making salvation happen on our own. It is, um, you know, it, we have to earn our salvation by good works. And we should also then tremble out of fear of God because God might be angry with us and smite us. So we better tremble as we're trying to earn our salvation as well. But this is kind of a sort of fake news in the biblical sense. You know, in the, in the same par of God helps those who help themselves. Because we can see pretty clearly in this passage that Paul is not talking about salvation, but he's talking about obedience here. We just read that Paul is talking to his friends. He calls them friends. He says, my dear friends, as you have obeyed in the past when I was with you, now obey in my absence. So Paul's intention here, his heart here in this passage, is not to uh, make his uh, congregation uh, concerned about their salvation, <laughs> to be wondering, well, am I saved? Am I doing enough? Am I, have I really worked out my salvation? But he is speaking to friends who have received salvation in Jesus Christ. If you read through the whole book of Philippians, you'll see very clearly that Paul says he is very confident that they have received salvation, that they are part of God's new covenant people. Paul is very clear about that if you look later on in the book of Philippians. So here Paul is saying, don't try to, like, salvation is not a jigsaw puzzle you have to figure out. It's not, you know, you don't have to, like, it's not a puzzle that you got to go, oh, did I get it or not? That leads us to great insecurity. But our challenge and our joy as well that Paul is speaking about here is fleshing out our salvation, is living into our salvation, uh, what we've received then to live it out. And Paul confirms this in the next passage. If you're following along in, with your Bibles, uh, the next passage says, for, God, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And it could seem that Paul is contradicting himself here. Paul just said, well, it's our work. And then now Paul says it's God's work. So which is it? Is it our work or God's work? You know, And really, Paul here is not saying either or proposition. He is saying a, a both and proposition. As we work to mature in faith, as we work in our ability to 
understand grace and recognize grace and live grace. And we strive to have the same mindset in, in Christ. What we are also experiencing is God working in the midst of our lives so that we will think about what is God's will and live out what is God's will to the glory of God as well. So pa Paul is speaking about this thing happening that we don't often even realize is happening. But I'm sure that if you followed Christ for any amount of time, even if you're new to the faith and just kind of are beginning to experience this new life in Christ, you've experienced this. You've experienced when there is a sense of, of accompanying you in the midst of your trials. You feel that you're not alone. You feel comfort. You feel hope. You feel a sense of presence. You feel a sense of assurance and maybe a sense of courage. And that is what Paul is speaking about here. And we can see this in the midst of the two words for work that Paul uses, because in both uh, the 12 and 13, the word for work is different in Greek. The first word in verse 12 is, uh, it's a long Greek word, uh, katergazomai, uh, which is not even the way you pronounce it. We don't know how to pronounce Koine Greek. But uh, in the English, you know, uh, revision of it, it's katergazomai, and it means to work towards an end. So that's the, the, the word for work that's in the first verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that word then is describing the task of the Philippians and our task in the middle of whatever we're going through, that we're called to keep going. We're called to keep faithful. We're called to keep struggling to understand uh, who Christ is and keep uh, discerning how to live out uh, Christ's words and his example in our lives. That's what we are kind of the first word. Clearly then in the Philippians um, experience. That Paul is really uh, exhorting them to just perseverance. To keep following God. To keep asking the hard questions. To keep even stumbling and falling. Taking two steps back and one step forward. To keep going. And that's also, I think, our task in this time. I mean, I know I've talked to so many people over these past seven months who just expressed how tired they are. And I know, especially as the pandemic and all of um, you know, what is going on around us continues, there's just a sense of exhaustion. You know, we're exhausted living in the middle of this pandemic. We're exhausted uh, living in the middle of these political divides that where many of us find ourselves kind of in the middle of them. But the, 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 the strength of the rhetoric on each side is so dividing and it just can be exhausting to live in the middle of them. Also, we find ourselves living in the middle of just these large calls for justice. And I think it can be exhausting because for those of us who are advocating for justice, you know, it's exhausting when you just don't see it happening. And when you see other voices going, well, no, all lives matter, or, you know, this doesn't matter. And going, well, how do we process these things? And how do we keep going when it just seems discouraging? So in the midst of all of that kind of exhaustion, and I'm sure you're exhausted in your own ways as well. I mean, I know for me, my wife and I are super exhausted just doing this uh, remote learning <laughs> that we're all, you know, a part of or having the, you know, with the DOE going back and forth about what to do. 
that's exhausting to us. And the invitation that Paul is inviting us to is in the midst of all of those situations we face. And everyone, from the mundane, I'm, I'm arguing with my wife or my husband. You know, or I'm having a hard time just um, loving my kid. I'm disciplining them a lot. Two, you know, my coworkers are frustrating. My boss, uh, you know, I, I don't, they're micromanaging. Whatever it is, all of those issues, whether they're big or small, we're challenged to have intention in the middle of them. To intentionally ask the question, what does it mean for me as a Christian to walk through these issues with Christ? What, what changes? What, um, what challenges me? What encourages me when I ask that question? We're encouraged to an intentional life with Christ. And that is what Paul's bringing out with that first word for work. But we see in the second word for work that Paul uses when he's describing God's work in verse 13, for it is God who works, he uses a different word. He uses in Greek the word energon. And I'm sure that's familiar to all of you because it really describes what that word means in English, to energize, to intensify. It's like an electrical current energizing a wire, bringing uh, it to a shining light bulb. So here Paul gives us the blessing in the middle of our work. Because the work that we're called to do, that Paul is calling us to do, is hard work. To work out our salvation, to, to live into the salvation given to us, to be a witness to Jesus Christ internally and externally in our families, in our church, in our world. That is hard work. But the blessing is that as God works, I mean, as we work, God works. That God is energizing our work. That he is in the midst of it. He is working in the midst of it. You know, when we ever receive, whenever we receive that conviction, where we're, maybe we are having a hard time forgiving someone or just putting up with them, you know, uh, as the scriptures tell us to do, when we receive that conviction of going, no, you must forgive. Christ forgave you, so forgive. That is that energon. That is the energizing of your, your work. That is God saying, I'm with you. I'm guiding you. My Holy Spirit is upon you. And as I said before, we sometimes don't experience that. Sometimes the work is just hard. There is not a lot of comfort. There is not a lot of encouragement. Even in the churches, we're going through these hard times. It can be hard. You know, it's a hard for us to encourage each other in these times. It's hard for us to connect. But in the middle of that, the, the joy that Paul calls us to uh, appreciate is that in the middle of our work, God is working. And he's actually working in far greater ways than we, uh, we know. God is working for his good purpose in far greater ways. I mean, when we look at ourselves, and I think when we look at each other as well, we see the brokenness. We, we see in the forefront the failure. We see our lack of living in grace. But the vision that God gives us is the opposite. That even as we fail, even as we fall, even when we don't get it, even in you know, our church, our, our fellowship as a church where we are not 
loving and caring for each other in ways that we should, where there's disagreements and, and uh, different visions, still God is working. Still God is in the midst, even in the midst of your depression or your sadness, your anxiety. God is working. God is with you. And that is the, uh, and God is energizing your work. And that leads us into a sense of holy ground. To know that God is, is with us in the midst of our work leads us to a sense of, of what Paul calls fear and trembling. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that word is not, those are Old Testament words that are not meant to describe terror and um, fear, you know, to tremble in, in um, just absolute terror, but they describe awe and reverence. So what Paul is describing here is that when we are working, whether it's our own personal spiritual growth, like we are working to stay faithful in spiritual disciplines, to pray, to study scripture, to respond out of love to those uh, who are different than us, um, to um, yeah, ask these questions, or as a church, we're doing that. There's a sense that we're on holy ground, that God is here. And as we read throughout the Old Testament, when people find themselves in those holy moments, they take off their shoes and they get down on their knees because they realize that there is this awesome, amazing presence of God. And Paul is inviting us into that perspective on just our daily lives with God. The daily grind of just going, what does it mean to follow Jesus in my family, with my friends, in my own life, in my work, in my neighborhood, in the city, in the world. That is holy ground. Because God is intimately present with us. So we're invited to have that perspective. That is, God is with us. There is the awe and reverence that is there. So as we continue this daily journey, we're called to do so with fear and trembling, to, with awe and reverence. And so Paul then shifts in this passage. We see that as Paul speaks about the call, he then speaks about the response. And if you notice throughout Paul's letters, that is very consistent for Paul. Paul always starts with inward, and then he goes to outward. And so we see that Paul does that here, and he does it in a way that we may not fully, um, yeah, fully agree with even, or fully kind of, um, uh, kind of understand, because he talks about something very specific here. He talks about grumbling. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. And that has led, I think, a lot of people to read this passage in separate ways, to look at the call and then break and then look at this response as different than as connected with the call. But we see in this passage that both are very intimately connected to each other. Not grumbling and disputing is the way that Paul speaks to the Philippians about how they are called to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. And we could wonder, well, why didn't Paul use other examples? Why only grumbling? Why only disputing? I mean, there are so many other moral and spiritual issues that, that might be more important for us, that we might go, well, Paul, why didn't you use that? He uses one example in this passage. But we see that he uses this example, firstly, because it, uh, 
is needed in the context that Paul is speaking about. As I mentioned, there, the Philippian church is in the middle of turmoil. There is internal conflict, and also there's external persecution, and Paul is not there to be the mediator. So out of that comes grumbling. Out of that comes disputes. But more importantly, though, Paul is speaking about grumbling and disputes because those are exact opposite responses than what Paul is encouraging here. Paul is encouraging people to work out their faith intentionally, to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. Grumbling is exactly the opposite, and disputing is exactly the opposite of that, and leads to a vastly different outcome. The word grumbling in Greek uh, is very interesting. It means a muttering, a murmuring. It could mean a, a low rumbling or a bad-tempered protest done in a muted way. And so I think by that definition, we all know grumbling. I know grumbling very well, and I'm sure all of you know grumbling. I mean, you might have just done it today, just as you're you know, going, doing a, um, an errand or even working with your family, going, oh, people are going to want to do this. You know, we do that daily. And we could wonder, well, that, what's so bad about that? We all grumble. Everyone grumbles. But we see that there's a problem with grumbling because grumbling obscures grace. Grumbling, when we're grumbling, we never grumble. I never grumble. You might do this, but I, I don't know anyone who does this. We never grumble. Oh, Jesus Christ, I thank you so much. Oh, I thank you for my life. Everything's so great. I love you. We never do that. We only grumble about um, the frustrating things in our life. And it, we grumble without hope. Our grumbling is passive. You know, grumbling and anger, I think some people uh, have asked me when I've talked about grumbling in the past, well, does that mean we can't get angry? That, why, we're going to be just pushovers. No one, you know, we can't um, respond when people are frustrating to us. But that's not the case here. In the scriptures, healthy anger is a very active thing. It is very active. It, it, it leads to justice. It leads to reconciliation. But grumbling is passive. Grumbling does not lead to any reconciliation. It just leads to resentment and frustration, and it leads down this uh, you know, slippery slope. It does not lead to joy. And it's the same with disputes. The word dispute in Greek is connected to grumbling. It means plotting against someone or selfish arguing. So disputes means arguing without any goal or without any desire for reconciliation, just arguing because of argument's sake. And also disputes means arguing without a sense of care for the other person. Arguing without acknowledging the other person is a child of God, created in God's image, and thus worthy of a basic level of respect and care and love. And even not cognizant of the call of Christians that we are called to love one another in Christ. So disputes have that sense of just arguing without reconciliation, and also the sense of plotting, plotting vengeance. So put those two together, and that is um, poison for the church. If you have a grumbling church, people just grumbling about everything, grumbling to each other about others, grumbling themselves about each other, grumbling about the leadership, grumbling about the worship service, grumbling about this and that, that is a toxic environment. 
that poison will just infect every part of the church. And then you have a church full of disputes, people arguing with each other with no goal, with no reconciliation, with no sense of desire to work things out, and with no respect for each other. And also plotting against each other, which could come out in forms of gossip and, um, and also others, you know, cutting ways. That is a church that is going to die. It's going to be poisoned to death. Because that church will not be able to experience grace. If a church is grumbling and disputing all the time, their focus is on self-righteousness, not God-righteousness. Their focus is on, um, you know, uh, their own desires and needs and not God's desire and needs. There, there is no sense of grace and love for the other, only a desire to get what they need. And that's why Paul is so adamant here about speaking just about grumbling as a way to apply working out your salvation in fear and trembling, because grumbling is so, such an important thing. C.S. Lewis spoke about grumbling in his book, The Great Divorce. If you've ever uh, read The Great Divorce, it's an allegory about heaven and hell, and um, it's meant to be an allegory, not theology. So some people look at that book and they're like, well, he's talking about purgatory. It's an allegory. He's trying to say something through this. And one of the messages is about grumbling. There's this person who is just grumbling, 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 and the representatives that come from heaven are trying to get this person to, to come with them to experience God's joy in heaven, and they won't because they're just grumbling. And the representative from heaven uh, talks about them in this way. They say, it begins with a grumbling mood, and yourself is distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing the mood itself. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And that, when I read that, that is, uh, I, I mean, I, I know people who look like that. And I'm sure you know people who look a lot like grumbles. They, their grumbling just goes on like a machine. Or they're in danger of becoming a grumble. And I know when I'm in danger of becoming a grumble as well. And so I think Paul is trying to wake us up here, going, grumbling can really affect your faith and your life, so be careful of not becoming a grumble. Paul says here, do not grumble or dispute at all. Like, no, none, no, <laughs> not even a little bit. Don't do it. And again, we could say, well, that's not possible. Everybody grumbles here. We all grumble here. But he's really speaking about, uh, not just about our own personal lives, but he's talking about outward witness here. When Paul speaks about grumbling, after that, he, uh, he gives a reason why we shouldn't grumble. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the world of life. So Paul is saying you shouldn't grumble because this is who you are in Christ. The word blameless and um, innocent describes what we are already. We are blameless in Christ. We have made, been made clean um, through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. 
and we are um, innocent. We are in Christ. God doesn't look at all of our sins and all of our shame. He sees us as his child, children of God in a crooked um, and perverse generation. And so Paul is saying to the Philippians, this is who you are. But when you are not intentionally thinking about your faith, you become like everybody else. You become just as crooked and perverse, just as grumbling, just as disputing as everybody else. And that's really, the, I think, the tragedy of, of our modern church. And we can see it um, all around us, that the church looks a lot like the rest of the society. We, are, we might be different, but often we're not different in positive ways. You know, we are, we are known, um, a couple of weeks ago we sang the song, you know, they will know we are Christians by our love. And I so wish that were the case. I mean, it is the case in some ways. But often, you know, they will know we are Christians by our judgments, by our, you know, by our politics, by all these other things. And so we can see here this kind of rebuke on us that the church needs to be known for something more than what everybody else is known for. We need to be known for, for being Christ people. And not even known by, by, for our good works, but known for lifting up who Jesus Christ is and honoring him and loving him. And so people who are blameless, people who are children of God, who are innocent, who have received that gift, they know who they are. And they lift up their father in heaven. And so Paul is saying, know who you are. When you, when you do these things, you forget who you are. And then he talks about being lights in the world. And that is then our work. That is our job. That we are called to be lights in the world. I mean, you know, I, I, don't, know all, I don't know any of you uh, <laughs> except Sam. But I'm sure, you know, you have many very important jobs that you do. Um, you know, in my congregation, we also, many people are doing all kinds of different work. Some, a lot of essential workers a lot of people doing very, very important work. But in the midst of that, the most important work we're called to do is be lights to the world. We're called to show who Christ is by our witness and by our word and by our actions. And when we are acting in ways that are not intentional in our faith, which is grumbling and disputing, then we lose that witness. Our light shines dimly, or as Matthew says, we put it under a, um, a bowl and nobody sees it. So Paul's hope is that as we um, seek to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, that we are doing it not just for ourselves, but doing it for the world so that they can see the goodness of Jesus Christ. And as we close, Paul kind of goes back to a personal um, kind of plea from that. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And after these hard words, this call to decision, this, you know, this moment of uh, kind of commitment, Paul ends with grace, which is a fitting end, I think, to a discussion like this. Because after, I think, all of these discussions about living intentionally uh, our faith and about not grumbling and disputing, we realize, man, I fail at this all the time. I am not able to do this every day. I, there may be some days I'm, I don't do this at all. 
And when we realize that, we can just be filled with shame and say, yeah, of course I'm not enough. Not a good Christian, maybe not a good person, you know, just not good enough. But here Paul ends with this sense of grace. He says, rejoice, I rejoice, and I am glad for you. Rejoice and be glad with me. The word for glad in this passage is kairo in Greek. And it is, um, has the root word of grace, which is charis. So the word for glad in Greek means to experience grace, to delight in grace, be conscious of grace. And then when Paul says, rejoice with me, the word rejoice in Greek means to mutually participate in grace. So isn't that an amazing way to end this kind of point of decision where Paul says, what is most important is that you experience grace. Rejoice and be glad with me. Experience grace. Participate in grace together. That is the way that we live our faith out intentionally. If we are focused on um, seeking to experience and rejoice and appreciate uh, in grace, then we will have a vision and a desire to um, ask those hard questions, to work out our salvation in Jesus Christ. Grace is the key for us. So I encourage you this week, as you go forward, seeking to ask those questions intentionally. What does it mean for you to work out your salvation in fear and trembling? What does that mean in your family? What does it mean in the midst of this pandemic? What does it mean in the midst of cries of racial uh, injustice and the need for justice? What does it mean in the midst of overwhelming needs around the world and, and your own struggles? As you ask those questions, the most important thing for us to do firstly is to receive grace. To receive the overwhelming one-way love of God that is given to you freely. And as we receive a sense of grace and a vision of God's grace, as we over are, uh, are overjoyed with God's grace, then we want to take that journey of intentionally responding to grace. So I encourage you, my friends, um, to experience God's grace and then seek to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, um, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that your son emptied himself of all but love to become a servant of us. To, he was selfless. He did not see equality with God as something to be grasped. He did not want to force his way uh, to being the best in the Trinity, but he took the form of a servant. We thank you, Lord God, for Jesus Christ. Lord, as we seek to have the mindset of Christ and to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, Lord God, would you help us, Lord, to understand your grace and love so that we then could live out of your grace and love as we seek to answer the hard questions of how, your, how our faith connects with our lives and especially how it connects with those questions that don't have easy answers. We thank you, God, that you are with us in far greater ways than we know. That is, we work, you are working in far greater ways, and we are grateful. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.